Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. proof of our dedication to a job is the outputs of what we do. Be confident, don't get arrogant, and remember that, you know, you can make any mistake on earth no matter how successful you've been. You know, people that don't have humility, I don't think are capable of being collaborative because you're not willing to accept that great ideas come from anywhere. You can say that, you can say it out loud like you mean it, but you're not really listening if you don't really think that you know you can you know, have that kind of humility. I may be very technical and I may love innovation and I love product development and I really, really geek out on that stuff. I, I genuinely enjoy creating things. My superpower, or whatever you want to call it, and I think everyone has a superpower for the record, so um, you know, my superpower, I believe, is I'm a sales and marketing CEO. You know, where I add the most value is when something starts to take off, I'm good at being the gasoline on the fire and taking it from this into, into this. You know, raising money is a soulless and horrible process that I do not enjoy at all. And that was probably definitely the worst part of the job. It's kind of like going for a, a mortgage every day. Um, and if you are a creative person or a product person or a tech person, it just, you feel like you're doing that all the time. And it's, and it's not, it's not fun. I think if you can figure out a way to slow it down a little bit, you know, you can uh, save yourself a lot of heartache. Hello, Face World podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of the stories from sung and unsung heroes. There are lots of exciting news for us in 2017. In addition to our main hosting service, which is Lipson, Face World is also available on iTunes, of course, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, and most recently, YouTube. We are prioritizing top 10 episodes first with new episodes rolling in one by one. My producer has done a phenomenal job just turning audio into on video and making sound more interactive and engaging. So what does that mean? Hop over to youtube.com forward slash face world to see for yourself. Today, I am joined by Freddie Laker, who is a British-American entrepreneur and the founder of the tech startup Guide, and most recently, Chameleon Collective and Code Orange. Prior to these companies, he launched the internet service provider Laker.net and the digital agency iChameleon Group and worked at Sapien Nitrile, now known as Sapien Razorfish, where we met in 2009 and he was um, with the company as a vice president of global marketing strategy. He is the son of Sir Freddie Laker, the founder of British airline Laker Airways. 
So what will you learn from this episode? I'm hearing firsthand from a serial entrepreneur who's daring and trying new things, especially related to computers and new forms of technologies since he was just a teenager. Sounds like every kid these days, but it was rather unusual 20 years ago. The nostalgic part of the story for me was to look back to when I first had my computer in 94, though I didn't really do much with it other than using the paint program. And meanwhile, Freddie not only started building computers on his own, he also decided to drop out of college and became a DJ for a Miami-based private radio station called Womb after being shut down by the Federal Communications Commission, also known as the FCC, their radio station used the internet to transfer the signal between two antennas, making it the world's first 24-hour internet radio station. There is no way not to delve into Freddie's origin story as the son of a very successful entrepreneur. Following the launch of SkyTrain in 1977, his father, Sir Freddie Laker, was knighted the following year in recognition of his services to the airline industry. In fact, Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Group, once said in a story he posted, having received help from a business mentor during his struggle to get Virgin Atlantic off the ground, Richard Branson knows all about the importance of having someone to look up to. That very person was Sir Freddie Laker. What did Freddie learn from his father? What was the important lesson Freddie learned the hard way, but thankful for his father later on? What was the one conversation like between the two while Freddie Jr. was struggling in his personal and professional life? This conversation was a lot of things from business to family and the moments and places in between. If you enjoy this episode, please share with others. Uh, better yet, leave a comment and let us know your thoughts on our blog or via social media. I want to thank Freddie Laker for his time, honesty, and sharing his stories above and beyond what I had expected. This episode is dedicated to Sir Freddie Laker and his family. He changed the world by enabling ordinary people to fly. And the public loved him and will always remember him for it. joining me, Freddie. I'm so glad we can make this happen. There are a lot of reasons why I want to chat with you because of your legacy and because how we met at Sapien in 2009 and literally over a couple of meetings. But one of the things I always remember is people said that Freddie's such a, such a nice guy. He's very kind. And then since then, there are a lot of things I need to catch up on, including Guide, which I know that literally won a number of major awards and something you're very passionate about for a long time. And most recently, you started uh, Chameleon Collective in August 2015 and Code Orange in March 2016. So there's a lot of stuff I want to cover uh, on this podcast, but I would love to learn something firsthand too, is a little bit about your origin stories. So it's like how you grew up, where you grew up, you know, you have an American accent. Yeah, sure. But, um, sure, I'll give you a little bit of my background. Um, so my, my father is English. My mother is actually from Oklahoma. Uh, so I'm half hick and half Brit. My parents were married eight times between them, uh, four times each. So I have this very diverse and unique family. I have a 78-year-old sister who's the same age as my mother. Uh, it's probably my father's first marriage. Um, I have a half-brother 
to my mom's first marriage. She was a actually world recognized like Hall of Fame wrestler. And I have a half brother called Biff. You cannot make this kind of stuff up. It's too crazy. You know, and then you've got me, who's this one kind of connection between the two different sides of my my family. I uh, grew up in between basically Miami and England. So I had a house in England until I was about 19. Uh, but I really, when my parents got divorced, we, we moved to Miami. Um, no other reason than, frankly, it was one of the places that, that Lake Railways flew to and I think my mom had started going there, you know, in the in the early '80s, and really liked it, and um, and just chose that to be the the place to move to. And you know, since then, you know, although I've kind of went to early school here, and and actually in her, mainly in Miami, and then 1992 Hurricane Andrew wiped out Miami, and I moved out to Palm Beach and, and did high school up there. I spent a couple months a year in England, so mainly most Christmas breaks and most most of all the summer. And you know, I think that kind of kept that little bit of that English heritage alive for me and always made me want to, you know, kind of go back to England one day, which I did do for the record at one point for a couple of years and then realized the weather was rotten and there was a reason why my family wanted to live in Miami. Uh, you know, but um, you know, that was that was a little bit of my, my childhood. I went to went to school in, um, in Palm Beach Gardens, uh, a place called the Benjamin School. Uh, I think my claim to fame there was I was the... Uh, I had the second lowest GPA, only to my best friend who had the worst GPA. Uh, but I had the actually, I think I had the third highest SAT scores in the school. You know, I used to drive my teachers nuts. I mean, they knew I was they knew I was smart, um, but they also knew that I just chose not to apply myself. You know, get, getting all personal and deep with you, but I, you know, it's funny. I was I was always a pretty nerdy kid when I was when I was growing up, and when I went to uh, high school, I kind of chose to reinvent myself as a, you know, I, I didn't want to be the the nerdy kid, and I ended up being uh, kind of you know becoming the class clown, and actually ended up going from being a kid who couldn't catch a you know a ball in in uh, you know middle school and elementary school to by the time I graduated high school, I was a captain of the soccer team, and uh, played on the American football team, and you know a bunch of other things like that. Um, but the reality was, I, I think I was still I was always that nerdy kid. I was uh you know, I would kind of go to school all day and goof around and crack jokes and play sports. But then I would go home and I would um, stay up on my computer till you know three. If I've always been a nocturnal person till you know three or four in the morning, and then go to high school the next day. And I don't think anyone really understood that I was doing that, mainly because I just probably didn't want them to know. And so I was always say I was kind of a closet closet nerd. My uh, my high school years I got very I'm a very early adopter of, of new tech. When I could hand build a computer from the age of probably eight or nine, which is not even that unusual now, but was very, very unusual if you started thinking about that being, you know, 1986 or so. And I think it was really those those skills, you know, then that really kind of set the tone from from for my whole life and a lifelong obsession with with technology. I mean, I think I got on the internet the first time in '93, '94, and you know, just just because I just wanted to play with it. Wow. So where do I begin? I, I want to first ask about the computer stories, as in you went on the internet and you were, let's see, 96, you were a teenager, perhaps at the time. What excited you the most about computers? What were you looking for at the time, which was such a fraction of what we are exposed to today? You know, I just I just wanted to be on something new, and I just thought it was. I think the concept of it was so cool. What I love this, 
you're kind of like maybe how I didn't like school in the sense of I wanted to learn what I wanted to learn as opposed to what they wanted to feed me at that time. And I think this concept that I could find what I wanted to find out there was was very interesting to me. I could tell you the big break for me, though, and I think it's one of my favorite, favorite stories. I think I always kind of use it as an example of how, how I got into the industry. So went to university for a couple months and I dropped out. wasn't my thing. And I came back to the U.S. My father sat me down and said, you know, son, I'm going to do something to you today. He goes, you're going to you're going to hate me for it. He goes, but one day you're going to thank me. And he was right. I did hate him for this. And I did thank him a couple of years later. Um, he completely cut me off. Uh, not emotionally or as a you know, father or anything like that, just financially. I, I had a very, um, you know, it was a very lucky childhood because of the successes of my father. And, and uh, he said, well, I don't think that's totally fair. He said, I will give you a job working at Laker Airways as a records clerk. And uh, he's like, I'll pay you $18,000 a year. And um, you basically have the lowest ranking job in the entire business. And it was his, I think, attempt to teach me some humility. And, and you have to move out of the house and you've got to kind of go, you know, look after yourself now and, and understand how money works. I'm sure plenty of people were cut off and didn't even get a job. So, but I, but it was, for me, it was a pretty big reality check. So uh, I was, you know, working at the airline and uh, for the record, by the way, within six or seven months, I already self-appointed myself the network administrator for the airline and basically was, you know, self-running RIT. Uh, you know, while all this is happening, my other great love um, has always been music. And at that period of my life, I was really, really, really into house music. I'd, I'd learned about house music in about 1992. I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard it. And I was an aspiring DJ. I was a pretty terrible DJ when I was 18, but I was still an aspiring DJ. But I had a pretty good mouth on me. Thank God I haven't lost that along with my hair. And I uh, was able to BS my way basically into DJing on a totally legal pirate radio station called The Womb. And uh, The Womb uh, was, you know, holed up on, on Washington Avenue in Miami Beach with an antenna hidden up in the top of a, a bell tower. Um, in a basically a shopping plaza, um, and we had this little room kind of you know hidden up above all these stores. And I had a crap slot on a two two p.m. on a, I think it was on a Tuesday, and uh, but I was on the radio and you know, being eighteen years old, that was pretty much the coolest thing that had ever happened to me. Um, and one day when I was in the station, the Federal Communication Commission raids the place while uh, I just happened to be while I'm there. And you know, on this totally illegal station. So everything starts getting taken away from us. I realize that's the, you know, it's the end of the station. Frankly, I'm thinking I'm going to get arrested. Uh, when I realize I'm not going to get arrested, I start getting a little bit more confident and I want to try and help my friends out. And, you know, and we end up talking to the FCC folks who are there and saying, look, please don't take our transmitters away from us. You're never going to hear from us again. We're just a bunch of students. We don't have any money. You know, please, please, please. You know, this, this will, you know, you'll never, you never see this stuff again. And, and I think we were being very sincere at the time, <laughs> being the key words. <laughs> so we ended up being able to keep the transmitter. We're off there, we're shut down. And actually, I don't even really think we realized how big, you know, the station was until we got shut down because it was the front page of the Miami Herald and the front page of the Sun Sentinel and our third page of Sun Sentinel, whatever it was, you know, that we were off there. Basically, you know, a couple of weeks go by and I'm pretty bummed about the station being gone. 
And this idea hits me um, like a lightning bolt. And I have very few perfect memories in my life, but this is one of them. I remember I was in my car when the idea started to come together in my head. And I remember driving. I was driving off onto uh, I-95 in Miami. And I actually pulled the car over on the side of the road because I had a notepad next to me and started kind of writing down some thoughts. And basically, Real Player, do you remember Real Player? So it had just come out. And cable modems um, had just hit Miami Beach for the first time. I don't even think they were in full meg and speed back then. I think it was like it was 512K or something. And uh, and so basically we started, we got a real player's uh, server set up where the station was, put an internet connection there and um, uh, you know, started broadcasting on the internet. Then we got a hold of another transmitter. We put that uh, hooked up to a computer at the south end of uh, South Beach. And then we took the original one, put that hooked up to another friend's computer at an apartment building in the north end of South Beach. And we made this very simple computer program that randomized the signals. So we would send the radio signal to one antenna through the internet for two or three minutes. And then at five minutes later, go to this antenna and then one minute to that antenna and then 11 minutes to this antenna. And we were using the internet basically to move the signal around. Uh, so that basically the FCC couldn't zoom in and find where we were broadcasting from anymore. Wow, wait, is this related to womb or is this some... It's the womb, yeah, this is still the womb. So basically oh, wow. we've got womb back on the air. And I think it's really ironic. All we cared about was the FM station. But, you know, the, you know, the concept of the internet side of it was nothing to us. But we saw the internet as a way effectively of, of you know, beating the, the, the government from finding us. What was illegal about it, by the way? Well, you can't just randomly pick an FM station and just start broadcasting on it. Oh, I I wasn't sure about yeah. that. So you have to register. Yeah, we just like picked a channel that no one was broadcasting on. We're like, yeah, screw it. What was it? Eighty-eight point five, I think it was. Um, you know, so by doing what we had done with this, when they tried to come find us again, I mean, they you know they were thinking like the movie Pump Up the Jam or something. I mean, they thought we had the antenna in the back of a truck and we're driving the antenna, you know, driving the antenna around, where they thought maybe we had it in the back of a boat and that we were moving the antenna around that way. And so I had this vision of these guys. You know, I mean, we were you know probably back on the air an hour before the phone rang. You know, they came down to the station. We said, yeah, come on down. We said, look, we don't. We're just broadcasting on the internet. We don't really know what happens with it once it leaves here. And um, and they you know these guys just weren't prepared for this. No one had ever done anything like this to them before. And so I have this vision of them in a truck with these things called triangulation units, and it's how they would zoom in on you. You know, they would basically you know they could say, look, we're three miles away from the signal, we're a mile away from the signal, we're half a mile away from the signal. And then the vision of them like in a van or something. This is pure speculation, just kind of driving up and down South Beach, going, we're three miles away, we're a mile away, we're a half mile away, we're six miles away. What the hell? just happened and drop down South Beach. Um, but it took them about five months to figure out that if they stopped the car, they could wait and they could keep, you know, keep inching closer and closer to us. Um, and they ended up shutting us down again. And at this point, we were not keen to, to mess with them. And it's a wonder none of us, you know, frankly, ended up with you know, some severe fine. Now, the fun part of this story, I guess, back, connecting it back to the internet, is we had been shut down. Uh, and when we shut down, we decided to keep broadcasting on the internet. And frankly, you know, it never even really dawned on us that anyone would listen to the internet when we were doing this. And but when we when we got shut down, we had like a hundred or two hundred people a day listening through the internet. We're like, oh, that's kind of cool. Well, you know, maybe we should keep that going. Real player giving us a preset in the software 
1999, they were selling those for a million dollars a pop. But back then, there were so few internet radio stations that, I don't know if you remember this, but in Real Player, you could click up on the top and they just had a stations drop down. And then you had like, there was maybe 30 stations they'd popped in there, you know, under a couple of different categories. And they were like, you were the only stations in the world. You know, we, we got shut down. We started seeing the numbers blow up, especially once that happened. The numbers are skyrocketing now. And one day, we get, you know, we're getting interviewed by different newspapers about the pirate. One day, Rolling Stone magazine reaches out. I wasn't there this day, but this is how the story was repeated back to me. It was basically the phone rings. Rolling Stone wants to talk to us, and they're talking to my friend and says, uh, "Hey, we want to interview you guys." And my friend's like, "Oh, uh, about the the pirate radio station." And they're like, "What what pirate station? You know, the pirate radio station." He's like, "No, no, no. We were we were interested. You know, you guys were." one of the first internet radio stations, full-time, 24-hour day internet radio stations in the world. And we just kind of wanted to know why you did that. And it was literally like, you know, hand over the phone. Hey, apparently we were one of the first internet radio stations in the world. We had no idea. Wow. And, they, and they, wrote this, uh, they wrote this article about us. Uh, there's two tech guys, four of us. There's two kind of techie guys, of which it was my friend Duncan and I, where they're really guys doing all the technical side, and then the other guys. And um, that article came out, and... Within a month, all of a sudden, my phone was ringing a lot. I was only about 19 years old. What year was this, 97 or so? Uh, I was around 97, yeah. And, um, you know, my phone started ringing a lot. And I didn't really know, you know, I was a kid, uh, you know, and I was, uh, but back then, like now, if you want to do something, you have a great idea and you're some big shot in New York or whatever, and someone goes, oh, I need a great internet guy. Everyone's got a dozen people they can put out there, for the most part, if you're in the industry. You know, back then it was like, I want to do this. Do you know anyone? Everyone said no, but I, you'd be like, I read about a guy. Wow. And people were just hunting me down. I truly credit the womb for my entire career. I mean, I had no college education. I was incredibly passionate about what I did. My, I would argue that the reason I'm able to speak semi-well and you know, can write very professionally and other things like that, I like to believe I'm decent at beyond a lot of personal experience at this point. So I would say my father was my business college and I learned an incredible amount about you know, from him for how to conduct yourself in business. But but my um, you know technical experience and my internet experience really all goes back to the womb. And if it wasn't for effectively my love of house music <laughs> for making me want to get involved with the pirate radio station, which in turn inspired me to bring this thing on the internet. I mean, none of this stuff would have happened for me. content that you produced or played uh, while you're working at Womb? Like, what, what is the... Because 24-7 is a... I was, I was uh, you know, it was all electronic music. So, I mean, it was, back then it was electronic music, so I think quite mainstream now. But back then we were, you know, people would be playing drum and bass for two hours. I used to play, uh, I think in that year, I was still playing a lot of trance music. And, uh, I, you know, I think uh, badly, might I add. I mean, I could barely mix two, uh, two records together back then. In fact, I know some people playing... Funky House, and there's just so many diversified styles of it. And 
we always had some people that wanted to play, you know, and uh, South Beach had a very vibrant nightclub scene and everyone was happy to get a, get a couple hours on the womb. Wow. It's so funny. I only read about womb on your Wikipedia and it was barely a sentence. And I'm so glad you're able to elaborate. Yeah, I've, you know, it's funny. I'm surprised there's not more of a, you know, kind of more backstory on it out there. Someone should should be able to construct it. God knows there's enough articles out there written about it. But it was, you know, even before the the internet side of it, I mean, it was probably one of the earliest electronic only stations in the U.S., you know, being one of the first and, you know, ran by a bunch of kids, this is like the story. <laughs> There's been a lot of um, early adopter kind of trend in, in my career, for the record, for better for, or worse. I would actually argue that I was so early on a lot of things that it didn't work out in my favor. I, I was too early on the internet radio, I think, to really do something great with it. I, well, I think in the late 90s, I could have raised money on a, on a paper napkin and probably, you know, if I'd known what I'd known now, I, I would have raised $30 million for the womb. I think we still would have failed because I think the model wasn't there yet, but it would have been easy to have kind of had some big, big wins like that early. You know, after that, I went on to start one of the uh, earliest uh, you know, internet service providers in Florida. And you know, ran that from you know, I guess whatever to us early two thousands. I mean, we were one of the first people in South Florida to have fifty six k internet access, which you know seems really quaint and cute right now, but I thought it was really really cool back then. You know, I still think yeah, that was it was a good time for it, and when again, I mean, that was a good business. But I still also think it may have been you know it may have been a bit a bit early on that. I think with Ike Million, which was the digital agency we had in the mid two thousands, I think we finally got the timing right on that, and that was the one that was uh, you know ended up uh, being rolled into Sapien in two thousand eight. Uh, but I think the timing was good on that one. And then um, you know I had another company called Guide you mentioned earlier. Uh, and, uh, you know, Guide was uh, a reminder, was the technology for effectively transforming text-based online news into video. You know, it originally actually started off as, as a, the original idea before I uh, pivoted, as many startups do, was effectively a newsreader for smart TVs. I wanted to be able to take the stuff I like to read, you know, on this and make it something that I could consume, you know, non-traditional news through through the TV. I was definitely too early on that one. I mean, how did you go about that? Who did you have on your team? What was your role versus their role? I think it's interesting because, you know, you are not a one-trick one pony. You know, you wear many hats. So tell me about that sort of setup process. That is, yeah, that, that is true. Um, <laughs> I was convinced that this was going to happen because I thought the Apple TV was going to come out the, uh, an Apple TV that ran apps like the current one does. I misjudged that by about two years. I was convinced it was coming out any day. In fact, I tried to time the whole startup around an unreleased product. With some advice to any entrepreneurs watching, don't do that. Uh, so I learned a lot of things with, with Guide. Guide was the first company that, you know, where I've had some companies that went through challenging periods and so on. But I really see Guide as the first company I ever had that, that really failed. And I learned a lot of things about it. One was the one thing I just mentioned to you a moment ago. Another was about finding your right role as a founder. You know, I I may be very technical and I may love innovation and I love product development and I really, really geek out on that stuff. I, I genuinely enjoy creating things. That being said, my superpower or whatever you want to call it, and I think everyone has a superpower for the record. So, um, you know, my superpower, I believe, is I'm a sales and marketing CEO. 
you know, where I really like, where I really going to excel is, you know, I like being part of the creative process, but I should have other people do that. And, you know, where I add the most value is when something starts to, to take off, I'm good at being the gasoline on the fire and taking it from this and into this. You know, I think I got that wrong with the guide. You know, they're on the very early stage, building out this product from day one. I think that because it's in my very nature to want to kind of sell and market things, I was marketing it and trying to grow it from the, you know, from month three. And actually, in hindsight, what I should have done is, you know, maybe kept up a kind of more traditional job, built a, an MVP of that product much, much cheaper than I did uh, in the background, very quietly in stealth mode, kind of help flesh it out, work out some of the kinks that I was inevitably going to run into, but ran into in a much more expensive fashion where I'd already quit my job and had hired a whole bunch of people and I could have, should have slowed it down. And I think if I'd slowed it down and had done that, um, you know, focused on my strengths and let other people focus on their strengths, um, I think I'd be, you know, would have been probably successful with that one. Uh, but it's hard to do that, especially if you, like you said, you're someone who wears many hats. There's a big difference between being able to do a lot of things and should I be doing a, a lot of these things. It's interesting you mentioned Sapien. I wonder what would be the value there. It sounds like that you invested a lot of your own money and time, yeah. certainly, into Guide. Yeah, I mean, I, so, I mean, so actually, on a funny note, um, and even Sapien invested um, in Guide. I thought that was pretty cool. That you know, it's, uh, apparently, I'm the only person at Sapien who's ever quit Sapien and then had them invest in their next business. So, wow. Uh, yeah, my kind of running joke on that has always been. You know, they either really appreciated the work I did for them or they wanted to make sure that I never, ever came back. <laughs> <laughs> Please uh, succeed. Yeah, but I, I mean, it was very kind of them and I'll forever be indebted and thankful you know, to, to Sapien for that. Um, uh, but, you know, I did I did have a lot of my own money in it. I think, you know, also Guide was the only company I'd ever raised money, uh, ever raised money for. I think raising money, and this is you know, something that a lot of entrepreneurs always talk to me about, you know, they talk to me about, uh, oh, great, you've seen you raise money. How can you help me raise money? Uh, I'd love to, you know, if I only had 250 grand or 500 grand or a million dollars or $2 million, whatever it is to start this business, like, I know it'd be a great success. I would argue that actually having all that money created a false sense of security for me. It made me not do things as lean and as mean as I had done them in the past, where I basically bootstrapped, you know, the prior businesses and even at my new companies, I, I bootstrapped. The other thing is, aside from dealing with a couple of very friendly parties like Zapian and some you know, investor friends of mine I've known for a long time, you know, raising money is a uh, soulless and horrible process that I do not enjoy at all. And that was probably definitely the worst part of the job. And I think at some point it felt like it was more than 50% of the job. It's kind of like going for a, a mortgage every day. Yeah. I mean, it's just not fun. Um, and if you are a creative person or a product person or a tech person, it just you feel like you're doing that all the time, and it's and it's not it's not it's not fun. I think if you can figure out a way to slow it down a little bit and you know be scrappy and at least the earliest stages, the you know, and just validate your idea, you know, you can uh, save yourself a lot of heartache. And if you're a person like me who gets very emotionally invested in almost everything he does, I'd probably save yourself a couple of dollars too. I you know, would have rationally cut myself off a little bit, you know, cut myself off from putting so much of my own money in a little earlier than I would have in hindsight. But yeah, you know, what they say with hindsight is always 2020. 
Yeah, that part is always very difficult, challenging. I happen to be, you know, have very similar interests, uh, even though I, you know, I didn't necessarily start a company of my own until very recently. And basically just me being a, working as a freelancer over the years, past 10 years, I've witnessed so many of my friends, many of my best friends, of course. I like to surround myself, you know, with entrepreneurs to kind of watch all the ups and downs and there is no set formula and every product is so different and there's the personality, the CEO, and then everybody else on the team. It's really quite challenging because uh, as a producer right now, pretty much nearly, I would say almost 90, 100% of things I do focus on MVP for my listeners who are not as familiar as minimal viable product. And, uh, you know, when do you know it's the right time for phase one and two or V1, V2, uh, is it about paying customers? If so, how many of them? You know, how do people think about, how do you think about those things now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, paying customers is one thing, but I, I would argue that paying customers is a, is a reaction to the outcome that you're trying to get to. So again, learning, I learned so much from, from the guide experience, um, I feel like I probably learned more from that than, than almost any company I've ever done before. And, you know, I guess it's the ones you, you get your ass kicked on that, uh, that you learn the most from. But I would say that it's when you feel that you're actually, without BSing yourself, solving a true, real, meaningful problem is when you're probably ready and it solves it well. With Guide, the earlier stages of it, it was very cool. I mean, it was a very, very cool piece of technology. And then I used to joke, we get a lot of high fives, but not a lot of checks because it was like, man, this is awesome. I don't see myself using it, but it is awesome. You know, and, it's like, and so that, that's, that's, that's a problem. And I think you can have things that are not that awesome, but man, they solve something that's, that's huge. When you really solve something, the money starts coming in very quickly. You know, everyone's willing to pay to have a, a, a legitimately meaningful pain point taken away from them. You know, it sounds obvious to, I think maybe some people say that, but I don't know, sometimes, especially if you're, you know, an early adopter personality type, like, like I am, you know, again, that's awesome. Uh, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a viable business yet. And that's why when you see, you know, that kind of classic chart of, you know, technology adoption, where there's this kind of, you know, the hype phase that goes up there. And then they talk about the phase of disillusionment, where it's like everyone get, hypes it to death and everyone's like, well, I don't really know what's going to happen with it yet. And then there's this period of like, well, once all the hype goes away, people start finding meaningful reasons to use it again, and it's, things start coming back up into the real period of adoption. Yeah, we're probably going to go through that with VR over the next couple of years. Oh, that's interesting. VR and AR happen to be something I was working on too at Arnold and many other agencies, as you can imagine. It's one of those things that appears to be so cool, but it's unclear at times what it's actually trying to solve. Yeah. And... You know, what I enjoy the most about coming out and just doing things on my own is I have to be brutally honest about these facts and precisely what you're describing because you can't BS yourself anymore. You certainly can't BS the client because they've heard it all. I recently interviewed a very young woman. She's, I think she's 26 and it was brilliant. You know, I, I saw her as this young girl, but the way she described her own business, uh, 
you know, she runs a social media sort of online courses uh, type of business. And she said precisely one pain point and make it very clear. Sometimes I think we try to solve too many pain points mm-hmm. as in, totally true. you know, we're your one-stop shop. And, yeah. and it sounds so trivial, but one of the most downloaded paid for product that she has is one of the smaller ones called a content calendar, which I happen yeah. to be specializing in. Yeah. You know, she's like, people really look, Look out for just that, and they're glad to to have it. And people start at, when she first put it out as a free product, as sort of the lead magnet. People were asking her, "How could you even make it free? People should pay for it." Yeah. And I think those are really interesting, sort of. You know, these these niches that people find for themselves, the more focused, the better. Um, especially in a world that's increasingly cluttered, and I have a message if you've got too much too much to say. So. People, uh, you know, it's so hard to be memorable. And if you give people five people, five things to remember you for, they're probably going to remember one anyway. So give them a couple of clear, easy things to you know, connect back to you. Absolutely. So with all the chaos, and uh, I definitely want to get to your current companies as well, but since you brought up the attention span from everybody else, including ourselves, are quite limited. So I wonder, what are some of the news resources and how do you keep yourself up to, up to date? I still do feel kind of exhausted living the technical world that we are yeah. today. <laughs> uh, as far as um, you know, staying current, that's a tricky one. Uh, so I think it's, well, it's tricky and not tricky. So the easy part is to say, well, hey, I read all these sites. I use tools like Feedly um, to kind of aggregate all the different subjects I find interesting and to kind of you know, groups and clusters that I can read up on. The, you know, I would say the second part that's slightly more challenging is, and maybe not natural, um, I don't sleep very much. <laughs> so I, I, I really only sleep uh, probably four and a half hours a night. And so I'm just, con- and I'm constantly, constantly reading new stuff. And it's just kind of, uh, you know, an obsession for me. So um, there's definitely a, a healthy dose of obsessive compulsive disorder that I, that I, you know, that I kind of leverage for myself in a, in, a, in a positive manner, because I find that when I get fixated on something that is just interesting to me, that I don't, there's no middle ground. Like I just go. The other thing I would say is a, a willingness. Now I know this comes along with, you know, having I've had a good career where I, you know, I've, I've been able to generate a respectable income for myself and I have some money that I can invest in things, but a general willingness to, you know, buy the new toys and play with them and find the time to play with them. When I think about, you know, different things that uh, customers might want to talk to you, whether you're an agency person or a consultant or frankly, you're just part of maybe a, a leadership team or manager and you've got other people looking to you for advice. There's a big difference between reading about a technology and living the technology. When you read about a technology, it's very, very easy to get up in the hype. Frankly, half the time, the people that you're reading it from have probably never even used it. There's some journalists who used it for you know, 10 minutes at CES or whatever. And that thing that I talked about earlier about the, you know, getting caught up in the, in the hype and the high fives and the awesome factor versus the reality of trying to use something, you know, on an ongoing basis, I think is, is really important. And, and that I find has given me a more realistic view of like, yeah, we're saying that consumers are going to love to do this, but I can actually tell you that they're, they're not going to, they're not going to use it in this way, in my opinion, over an extended period of time. And I think that only comes through using something long enough so that they are using things in real life situations so that that 
high five moment wears off and you start looking at things for their for their real value. your current companies. So two companies, uh, Chameleon Collective and Code Orange, you know, how they relate to one another, uh, how do they come about? Um, so Chameleon Collective uh, was the ultimate uncompany for me. It was a, I swore about a year and a half ago that I would never start another business again because I really wanted to focus on being, having freedom and personal freedom and a certain lifestyle that I wanted to live. Um, but since then, I've not only failed at not starting another business, but I've spectacularly failed at not starting two businesses. And, um, you know, originally it started off as a company where I wanted to do like independent kind of gun for hire CMO and chief revenue officer work for people. I used to describe myself, maybe do still do some days that, you know, when people kind of try to understand my personality type, I would say, well, have you seen Pulp Fiction? And oh yeah, and I said, well, I, I'm the wolf. I was the Harvey Keitel character. Like I'm the, you know, I'm the cleanup guy that you want to send into the deep end. And when when shit gets a little crazy, and I said, I just kind of thrive in that in that kind of chaos and that kind of stress. And I think that's a very valuable skill that that people want, especially for like private equity firms and companies like that when they want to do a turnaround. What happened though is as I spoke to more and more people like me, people who you know, entrepreneur friends of mine, I would say actually probably 75% of Chameleon Collective has founded at least one company, which is pretty crazy. Um, you know, this is something I think we worked out. There's something like 13 or 14 former CEOs in the group. Um, you know, everyone has held at least some, you know, C-suite role. And frankly, most of us got connected in because at least one of us is friends with one of the other Chameleons. And we started noticing this con- kind of common DNA amongst the group. And that was that, you know, many of us were doing consulting work and, you know, there's still the Deloitte's and the PwC's and whatever of the world and even the sapiens for, for consulting. And they've got a great space in the market and, and, you know, they do great for certain types of engagements. But we started realizing there was another type of customer out there, a customer that valued people that were very, very high impact change agents. I, you know, I, I kind of struggle with liking that term, but you know, people that can come in and really, really, really make an impact and do it under very challenging situations and not necessarily be, you know, hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to work for three months and I'm going to give you a PowerPoint deck, you know, for $450,000, you know. And so, so this was, I think it was, this became a very in- interesting proposition. This did the value effectively of entrepreneurial DNA. And then what was really interesting was because we had this, all of us, you know, beyond sharing this kind of certain skill set, all of us actually had aligned around this idea that have us, we, we didn't, we, we really didn't want conventional jobs anymore. We don't, we want, we were people that were all kind of alpha personalities in their own right. And we were looking for a certain quality of life and a lifestyle that we weren't going to get working at a big fortune 500 or even a, you know, large up and coming startup that we wanted that freedom. 
And so when you have a mindset like that and you, you're saying, look, I want to come in, I want to have a lot of impact, I want to help people, and then I actually want to move on. And so what we started thinking was, you know, we have a, our, our group has a lot of value, not from just the type of work we do, but actually how big our, our network is. And that network might be everything from business development, but it might also be from helping people build teams. So we actually added in a recruiting division, which is doing extremely well. And so now our pitch is something like, oh, we're going to come in, where maybe it's one chameleon, maybe it's four chameleons, maybe it's you know, two chameleons, whatever it is. We come in, we can build, we can build a, a very senior executive leadership team for you very quickly. We can solve some problems. And then once we're in there, we will have a much better understanding of your business and we will actually fire ourselves. We're the only consulting firm on earth. I think it might be nuts and maybe I'll regret this years from now. But as far as I know, we're one of the few consulting firms on earth that tries to get themselves fired every six months. And so we, we say, look, this is the person you need, the long-term solution. And, and maybe it's a direct replacement for you or maybe it's two other people, but it's hard to really make those recommendations to really inside the business. And our goal is that when we back away, they're not addicted to us like, let's say, an agency model or even a, most consulting models where you're trying to get people on three years worth of billables. You know, we can go in and say, look, we left we left this company in a really, really great, sustainable position where the CEO is happy, the investors are happy. Um, that we, you know, we left them in a spot where they're going to be successful. And frankly, I think that's why private equity firms like us so much, because we're we're coming in, we're solving it, and we're leaving them in a good spot. And then, you know, I'd much rather work on the next opportunity than unnecessarily drag a client out. And I think people recognize that. I think it's really cool. I love the the fact that you mentioned lifestyle and uh, the ability to kind of connect all the dots. I've recently experienced on a much, much smaller scale. Uh, as you know, I started freelancing full-time as of a year ago. And uh, so far, I just have been so happy with the progress and the people get to work with, the projects I get to choose to, to work on. It's just like, for some people. I think people are really, really afraid to make that leap. Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of the, what's allowed us to recruit so many amazing people from Chameleon Collective and, and Code Orange, and for the record, both companies we will never have an office. We've all, you know, there's now over 50 people between both businesses, which is incredible given that they're both, you know, around a year old. And, you know, we will never have an office. It's not, it's just not part of our DNA. It's not part of our culture. Some people have gotten together in, in, in you know, certain cities and established places, but it's not, you know, a mandate of the company and it's something they chose to do on their own. And um, I like to, you know, show that to clients that we don't do that because I think also it, you know, you first off, you get the right people wherever they may be with the right experience. Sometimes some of these people are unhirable. Like I don't think, I don't think, um, you know, they would have joined any organization if it wasn't on their terms like this is. You know, I kind of look at some of my partners in in Community Collective and can't believe that they're, you know, we're, we're even working together. And I think part of the way that we are able to do that um, is we actually operate on a completely flat management structure that's kind of a derivative of holacracy. And, um, you know, you, I've gotten people that maybe I wouldn't have worked for them and they wouldn't have worked for me. But, um, you know, in this way that we've approached the culture of the company, we've been able to get all these just incredible kind of alpha personalities under one roof. It's been it's kind of mind-boggling. Yeah, I think that, I think this message will, will resonate with a lot of listeners because this is the route everybody is trying to pursue if they haven't done it already. I think a lot of the systems and the way that they work together can really relate back to how, you know, you run your company. So people are probably eager to eager to, to ask that question. How do you recruit 
and if they're they think themselves of being very talented of something to offer how could they be part of your team for example well, that's a tricky one. So this is it's an unusual company in the sense that uh, we've probably got about 40 or 50 people on on the waiting list right now. In a traditional company, and if anything I've frankly done in the past, my, my goal was, frankly, I was always trying to figure out how to sell it. And, and so because of that, I was always trying to think about how I grow it. And I'm like, grow, 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 higher, 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 bringing more and more and more biz dev. But then if you flip that on their head and you think about something like, you know, community collective where we're saying, no, this is about happiness ultimately. You know, we're not we're not rushing to pull in partners or anything like that if, if we don't need to, if we don't need to. Um, and basically if so anyone who's in community collective, someone in the group has to have worked with them before. So you have to have at least one person that can vouch for you. And then a certain number of partners have to basically buy into you. There's no way to apply. So it's invite only, basically. So, but what we're finding is that as we eat, every time we add one partner, there's three more people that are like, oh my God, it's great. You've got to, I've got to bring in, you know, my friend Susan or whatever it may be. And so we've actually had to slow down the recruiting process just a little bit. So if anyone's out there and they think they have this kind of comparable skill set and they visit communicollective.com or, or court at codeorange.com and, um, you know, they're kind of excited about it. Um, but if the company is is not driven by our, you know, if our if our main driving factor is and how can we raise our revenue this year by twenty percent, which for the rank for records, you know, it's, gonna, it's happening naturally, but that's not our goal. For our, of our goal is about how do we keep doing amazing work and how do we all continue to enjoy this lifestyle? Then we recruit by very different standards from other people, and it's kind of awesome. It's actually that it's it's the the happiest I've been in a long time because the culture is so right. How long have you been freelancing or doing running your own company, not sitting at an office? Well, I've been running my own companies for a long time, but I just, as far as freelancing goes, um, uh, I would say I started in uh, September of 2015. And from September of 2015 to January, I was like, I'm just going to do this on my own. I don't want to do this with other people. You know, and then in 2016, we just kind of accepted like there's something special here and, and some really great people had, had, had joined me. And you know, now you know, we'll probably be at probably 40 partners by the end of this year. And Code Orange will probably have 100 people in it within a year. Before we close and kind of come in full circle into the the things that I remember you the most from seven years ago in 2009 is you're you're in a meeting, you're very collaborative, you're a team player, and that's when I found out, you know, who you are and and all that. And people said, you know, Freddie is a really, really nice guy, really down to earth. So I, you know, I thought to myself, because... Many people working at Sapien Consulting tend to come from relatively privileged families. What are some of the values that you learned growing up? Maybe it's your mom, dad, brother and sister. What are some of the values distilled in you? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I'm lucky I've got two great parents. I've got a you know, great 
mom who uh, actually invited to come live with me this year is a, you know an, was an entrepreneur as well. Um, but you know, I, I I think from a business standpoint, my my father probably had the you know, biggest impact on me. You know, for those of you listeners and watchers, I should say that you know don't don't know my family background, but you know, my, my father was a guy called Sir Freddie Laker, and he was knighted by the Queen, and he was considered the early pioneer of low cost air travel. So if you had been on a, a low cost flight with a Southwest or EasyJet or whatever, like you know, Dad found started the airline that basically broke government regulation of aviation. And um, in fact, if you look at, you know anything about Richard Branson, Richard Branson even says that, you know, my father was his was his business idol. In fact, one of the earliest Virgin planes was, was named after dad. So, you know, this had a huge impact on me, not only in terms of, frankly, um, being a, a, a lot of pressure, Frankly, it was big. It was a big shadow to live in. I mean, I spent most of my childhood, even though, you know, going full circle back to the story I was telling at the, the beginning, you know, being being you know, cut off. I mean, but I, the reality is, I spent my whole childhood being groomed to be an airline CEO. I mean, he was grooming me to be an airline CEO from the time I was 13 or probably younger. But it wasn't all that work that actually I think I learned from him, and I think the most important lesson I got from him, and he gave me whether I wanted it or not when he cut me off which is about um, humility. There's a, there's a big difference between confidence. You can be confident, don't get arrogant, and, and, just rem- and remember that you, know, you can make any mistake on earth no matter how successful you've been, and you might be doomed to you know, repeat them again. And I think that you know, can cause you to have a healthy dose of humility. And I think when you, you know, people that don't have humility, I don't think are capable of being collaborative because you're not willing to accept that great ideas can come from anywhere. You can say that. You can say it out loud like you mean it, but you're not really listening if you don't really think that you, know, you can you know, have that kind of humility. Um, and I think you know, it doesn't allow you to be wrong. People that don't have humility can't accept being wrong. And I think being accepting when you're wrong is super important. And I also feel like, and I've seen this happen to a lot of people, not just people, kid, you know, people who grew up in privileged families, but frankly, people who have become very successful, which I have been exposed to a lot. And you start to think you're better than other people. And actually, when you do that, you stop connecting with people um, because you think you are only connecting with people on your own level or you're looking at people through a certain lens. And it's frankly not a good look. I don't (laughs) like people like that. And I see it a lot. And so, um, you know, I just, I just always try and encourage people to, have some humility, and I can I can tell you maybe a great way to end this this will be to tell you my favorite story my father ever told me. And um, so my dad and I were, were best friends, and we used to talk about only two things, and not everyone understood our relationship, but this is all we talked about. We talked about business, and we talked about women. That was all we talked about. <laughs> it's great, <laughs> and, uh, great choice. And he, you know, he was eighty four when he died. He'd be over ninety four now, so there's a huge age gap between us. I think he was fifty five or something when I was born. Uh, but we talked about these two things. And we loved talking about those two things, and 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 so and I used to call him every day. And even when I started my first business, I was calling him every single day, and, and we talk at least 20, 30 minutes a day. And, and we never hung up the phone without saying, I love you for the record. We were really, really tight. And um, one day I was with him, and I was telling him something stupid I had done. And I think in this particular case, it involved a woman. And I, I remember he's listening to me and nodding, listens, he nods. I talk for two, three, four minutes, who knows what. And he doesn't say a word and waits me to finish, tell my story. And as soon as I finish, he just... And nods, he puts his hand on my shoulder and goes, son, 
I've fucked up things you haven't even thought of yet. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was funny and it was profound all at the same time. It like made me laugh, but at the same time, it also made me kind of go like, yeah, this guy's got 50 plus years on me. And like everything that I think I'm going to screw up, this guy's screwed up three times already. And I'm probably going to screw up at least twice more as well. And, and it was just, um, and he did pretty, and he did okay. You know, it made me kind of just go that, it's just part of life. And I think, you know, having the humility about the ups and downs of that journey is, is okay. And frankly, if you're really lucky, try and have a good sense of humor about it. Yeah. Make mistakes. And I yeah. love, I was really touched by, because of you, I learned so much more about your dad. And I know being knighted is no, is no easy task. And, you know, people in the States might not even be able to relate to that. But one thing that really touched me was in the end, how the people of England really supported. And I can just imagine people pulling $20, $100, whatever they can afford to support him. I mean, that said everything. <laughs> Remember, you remember the band, the police, they even, they even put a benefit concert together to raise money for him. You know, Sting's old band. Yeah. So, I mean, the people were the people, he was a folk hero there because I think people today, it's easy not to remember this, but like before the deregulation of the aviation industry and low cost carriers, if you were, a, you know, whatever, a plumber or a waitress, like you couldn't afford to fly from England to America. Like it just didn't happen. And so it was really for the, you know, middle and upper class and so to a lot of people in England, like he, it was like he was a man of the people. In fact, I've met countless people over the years where they're like, you know, I was a, I was a student and the first time I ever went to America was on a Laker flight. You know, they tend to be people and they're kind of like, you know, late 40s or 50s and uh, like, you know, it changed my life. And so when they shut, you know, shut Laker was down and the, all those airlines conspired, you know, against him. Yeah, those, and then the day he shut down, the prices were doubled, and then a week later they were quadrupled. It was pretty obvious, you know, that the the people that were really going to suffer, frankly, was the everyday man, and and those everyday men rallied for him. Yeah, it was really touching. Those are the stories that you you just never forget. And uh, I, I have to say, very few businessmen ever had this happen to them. Um, so that's awesome. Thanks so much for your time. And this is just uh, precious. I, I always get so excited. I get this like such a natural high just talking to people. I enjoyed it. It was good stories today. Thanks for, thanks for making me think about some of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you later. Thanks. All right. Cheers. Take care, Freddie. Bye. Bye. Hope you enjoy this episode of the Phase World podcast. My team and I will be thrilled if you choose to write us a review on iTunes. It really helps to get the word out. Simply search for Phase World podcast in your iTunes app under podcast. Click on readings and reviews tab and then write a review. The star review takes seconds or a brief text review will be fantastic too. Thank you on behalf of me and my team from Phase World.